I'd like you to turn with me to the passage that was read from John chapter 2 and verses 12 and following. Geronimo's monastery in Lisbon, Portugal, is one of the major landmarks in that country. It dates arguably to the 1400 and is associated with great explorers like Vasco da Gama who reputedly spent his last night in that monastery before he traveled to the east. This monastery houses a cathedral and like many of the ancient cathedrals in Europe. Thousands visit it annually. They marvel at its architecture, the darkened interior, the candle and the other religious paraphernalia that are used to simulate sacredness. Today, it stands as a tourist attraction. The most ancient religious site in Israel was the temple, with its outer courtyard, with its holy place and its most holy place. But unlike many of the cathedrals, whether in Portugal or Spain, or France, which have become tourist attractions. The temple in Israel was never to be seen as a tourist attraction. In fact, it was the most important institution in all of Israel. It was the center of Israel's religious and political life. In fact, one writer says that the temple was the symbol of Jewish national and religious identity. It's very hard to find another institution in our context to liken it to the temple. Perhaps the best we could do in trying to get a sense of how important the temple was to Israel, we can think of our parliament buildings, the houses of parliament, or you think of the White House in Washington, D.C., or the Kremlin in Moscow. And yet none of these can truly capture how important the temple was to Israel. Without it, they had no identity. And given the importance then of the temple in Israel, one begins to consider with some degree of surprise that the gospel writers allude to the replacement of the temple. There is a theme in the Old Testament of a greater temple to come. But when the New Testament writer picks up the subject of the temple, they do not see a brand new temple being built. They in fact see their complete replacement and fulfillment of the temple. What is so surprising, however, is that the temple 
that the New Testament writers and the gospel writers describe. This new temple is not an ornate structure, but a person. That they describe Jesus Christ as the new temple that will replace the Jerusalem temple. It is this that I want to reflect upon Jesus as the new temple. And by the grace of God be able to draw some application for our life here and now. Perhaps the most explicit reference to Jesus as the temple occurs in John chapter 2, verses 12 to 22, from which we read. John sets the stage. Jesus, after the miracle of turning water into wine in Cana of Galilee, travels to Capernaum. He does so briefly with his family and the disciples, and then he returned to Jerusalem in time for the Passover somewhere in March or April of the Jewish calendar. This is one of the three annual pilgrim feasts that God commanded all the men in Israel to assemble in Jerusalem to celebrate. The Passover commemorated God's deliverance of his people, how the angel of death passed over Israel and struck the firstborn of the Egyptians. It is this Passover, God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt, that Jesus goes up to the temple at Passover to celebrate. And in verses 13 to 16 of the narrative, Jesus enters the temple. You see that in verse 14. He went up to Jerusalem and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. What a sight opened before the eyes of our Lord. His purpose is to worship God in the temple. And I want you to understand that what he finds is a market in the temple. Now, <laughs> Let's be clear that the term that is used here for temple in verse 14, herion, refers not to the inner sanctum of the temple, but the temple precinct, the temple environment, the outer court of the temple. What he sees is a bustling trade. People are busy selling animals. They're selling oxen and sheep and doves. And why were they doing this? Well, they were doing this because these were the animals that were needed for sacrifice. You know, you, you, you come up to Jerusalem from Galilee, you don't want to be dragging behind you an oxen or a sheep. You know, it's all very convenient if you go to Jerusalem and right there you can find what you need for sacrifice. And there were Jews who had come from the diaspora, from different parts of the Roman Empire. They were using different currency. And if they were going to buy animals, and if they were going to be able to find lodging and food, they needed to be able to 
changed their money, their currency, in the local currency in Jerusalem. And so, these fellows thought, not only do we need to be selling animals in the temple, but we also need to have an exchange, a foreign exchange booth. And they were busy calculating and selling animals and changing money. Now, we do not, let's be clear, we, you know, the, the, the religious leaders in Israel always get a bad rap for everything that happened. We beat up on the Pharisees, and perhaps we should, and the scribes along with them. So we don't know that these were religious leaders who were selling things. At least the text doesn't tell us that. But let's be clear that they could not have done so without the permission of the religious leaders. They were the ones who adjudicated over the temple. They are the ones who controlled the temple. And so it may have been local traders who were using the temple, but let us never be in doubt that it was permitted by the religious leaders and that they were getting a cut of the money. In fact, the, the, the temple was fabulously wealthy. And part of that wealth came from this trade. So Jesus comes to the temple and he sees this one-stop shopping mall right there in the temple. And our Lord is grieved by it. And he makes a whip. A whip, we are told in the text, of cords. And drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. It's interesting. Our Lord did not have a massive weapon. And yet all these people are fleeing before him with their animals. A whip from cords wouldn't frighten a bird. It's not a fearsome weapon. And one wonders why then they are fleeing. But there's something about the presence of the Lord. There's something about the authority that he wheels. Because you see, he's God in flesh. What is it that so upsets our Lord? It is not simply that they were turning the house of the Lord into a den of thieves that is remind, told to us by the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but that they were changing the very purpose of the temple. You see, this was a house of the Lord, a house of prayer. And our Lord Jesus says in our text, take these things away, verse 16, do not make my father's house a house of merchandise, a house of business. The purpose of the temple was not for buying and selling and changing of currency. It was a spiritual place. They had turned it into a commercial venture. There's always a great danger to turn the gospel and spiritual things into a money-making environment. In verse 17, we are told the disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal or zeal of your house has eaten me of. And they're reminded of the text that is there in the Old Testament book of Psalm. The zeal of the Lord has, has eaten the Lord up. Our Lord responds out of zeal for the honor of the Lord in accordance with Psalm 69 and verse 9. The Jews who were there challenged the Lord. And they asked him, for a sign, a sign to validate his authority 
to cleanse the temple. And Jesus responds, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now clearly the writer says that the Jews who were there, at least he makes it plain that they misunderstood the Lord. Because they believed that when he referred to himself as a temple, or when he referred to the temple, he was referring to the physical Jerusalem temple. And they argue, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you were promising to raise it up in three days. Luke, or, or rather John the editor, adds this in clarifying editorial terms. He says in verse 21, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. Jesus was asked for his authority to cleanse the temple. And he says, destroy this temple in verse 19. And in three days, I will raise it up. He's referring to his death. The sign, he says, of my authority is that you will kill me, but I will arise from the dead in three days' time. What I think is important for our at least purpose here, is that Jesus refers to himself and his person, the temple. Destroy this temple that is his body. Here is a very clear statement where Jesus equates his body to the temple. It is interesting because earlier in verse 14, the, temple, the term temple occurs. There it is herion, which refers to the temple grounds, the temple precinct. But here in verse 19, Jesus has destroyed this temple. And he uses a different term. He uses the term naos, which refers not just to the, simply to the temple precinct, but to the inner sanctum, to the holy of holies, where the Shekinah glory of God dwells. He refers, destroy this sanctuary, this inner sanctum and I will raise it up on the third day I want us to consider then Jesus as this new temple and try to unpack this image when you think of the temple what comes to your mind I want to suggest that there should be a cluster of thoughts that come to your mind when you think of a temple and understand how Jesus then fulfills the temple the first thing we need to know is Jesus as the new temple symbolizes that he is the locus, the place of revelation. We cannot think of the temple and think accurately of the temple without realizing that the temple was the place of revelation. And when Jesus refers to himself then as the temple, it symbolizes that he is a new temple, the locus, the place of revelation. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle and the temple were the places where God revealed himself. When God gave Moses the commandment to build the tabernacle, the tabernacle was to be a place for the dwelling of God, where God would dwell, where God would reveal himself to Israel. In Exodus 40, 34 to 35, after the temple was erected, or the tabernacle was erected, 
we read, and the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It was where God dwelt, where God revealed himself. And what was true of the tabernacle was also true later of the temple. For after Solomon had dedicated the temple that he had built, the narrator says it came to pass that when the priest came out of the holy place, that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not continue ministering before the cloud because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And Solomon spoke the Lord, he shall dwell in the dark cloud. I have surely built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. You see, both the tabernacle and the temple were the places where God revealed himself, where God dwelt amongst his people. Jesus now refers to himself as the temple. Destroy this temple. And in three days I will raise it up. He can refer to himself as a temple, the nearest of God, because he has now come as the final and the climactic revelation of God. You get a sense that Jesus Christ is the new temple, the revelation of God, the place of divine revelation by reading in John chapter 1, where John says, And the word became flesh, in verse 14, and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld the glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is John who begins this complex and deeply moving passage by telling us that in the beginning was the Word. He describes Jesus as the pre-existent Word. The one who is the agent of creation. The one who was with the Father in the beginning. And then he moves on to tell us that the Word that was in the beginning with God was God himself. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He tells us that through this Word, this pre-existent Word, the Word was made. He says, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. But he moves in this passage. To show that the pre-existent word became the incarnate word. And so he says, the word that was in the beginning with the Father. The word that was God himself. Came and dwelt. Pitched his tent amongst us. Moved into our neighborhood. There you have it in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And John says, and we beheld his glory. We beheld his glory. That is the only unique of the Father, full of grace and truth. 
What am I trying to, to do here? I'm trying to draw a connection between where, where the glory of God was revealed in the Old Testament and where the glory of God is now revealed. In the Old Testament, the glory of God was revealed in the tabernacle and in the temple. But John sees the glory of God revealed in a new place. In fact, in a person. And the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we beheld his glory. The glory of the only unique son of God. And the glory that they beheld in Jesus Christ. Refers not merely to the transfiguration of the son. But the glory that they beheld is in his character. When Moses wanted to see God's glory. What did God do? The Lord passed before him and revealed his character to him. The Lord, the Lord, God merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. It is in Jesus then that the glorious presence of God is revealed. It is in, particularly in his grace and truth that glory is seen. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That Jesus Christ is the fullest revelation of the glorious God. Because it is he who displays the magnitude of the grace of God. Full of grace and full of truth. That's where God's glory is seen. In the plentitude of grace and the plentitude of truth. That is found in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul will tell us that God's glory is not revealed in the Jerusalem temple, but in Jesus. For in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 4, he says, For it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, was shone in our hearts. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. It is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus does not merely convey revelation about God. He is the revelation of the glorious God. He is the new temple who reveals God. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Our Lord Jesus Christ, in his person, in his word and, and in his works, reveals the glory of God. That God is now personally revealed, not so much in a place, but in a person. Well, if the imagery, the symbol of, an, of a temple, points to Jesus Christ as the locus of revelation, then Jesus as the new temple symbolizes that he is also the locus of satisfaction or atonement. I don't know what you think of cathedrals. Some of us like ancient buildings. We like to go to cathedrals as I mentioned. The architecture is great. 
When we think of the temple, we need to know that the temple was a place that was washed in blood. You see, the temple, not only was it the place where God revealed himself to his people, but the temple was where sin was dealt with. It was a place of satisfaction. It was a place of atonement for sin. When you read in Leviticus chapter 1 to chapter 7, and the sacrifices that are listed there, particularly sacrifices for sin, where were sacrifices performed? They weren't performed at home. They were performed at the tabernacle and at the temple. You see, a man or woman who sinned had to take a lamb or a dove, the best of what they had, that was without blemish. The guilty party would take the animal to the temple and present it to the priests. But the, the guilty party did not then leave the animal and go away. This grisly bill business of slaughter was not the responsibility of the priest, but of the sinner, the offender. It is his or her hand that slashed the throat of that animal. Because he had to recognize that sin is personal. That it is he or she who deserves to die. The priest would collect the blood and sprinkle it. My point is simply that the altar of sacrifice was at the temple. And Jesus now identifies himself as a new temple because he's a place of revelation, but the place of satisfaction. In John chapter 2, John the Baptist recognized, or chapter 1, John chapter 1, John the Baptist recognizes Jesus in verse 29 as the one who brings satisfaction. He saw him, he says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. See, John views Jesus as the one who brings atonement, who delivers from sin. And throughout the gospel of John, Jesus is presented as the one who brings satisfaction, who atones for sins, who pays for our sins with his blood. You see this language of Jesus dying in the language of being lifted up in chapter 3 verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the, must the son of man be lifted up. Jesus will insist, according to John, that he must die and that his death will save sinners. So Jesus in John 12, 24 to 27 could say, Most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, 
it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. And then he goes on and says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. He reveals that his death is the ground of fruitfulness. He cannot produce spiritual children for God unless he dies. Destroy this temple. And in three days I will raise it up. In John 6, 51, Jesus again speaks to his death as the atoning sacrifice that saves. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. You see, the multitude of slaughtered animals in the temple could not save God's people. But in this new temple, Jesus is the place, and Jesus is the priest, and Jesus is the lamb that pays for sins. Destroy this temple. You see, it is by his death and resurrection that Jesus replaces the temple. He, by himself, bore the judgment of our sins. He paid with his own blood for our sins. You see, he is a new temple where sacrifice is performed. He is both priest and victim. So the new temple symbolizes that Jesus is not only the locus of revelation, but that Jesus is the locus of satisfaction, satisfaction for sin. But there is another idea that is associated with the temple. It is not only the place of revelation where God reveals himself, the place of satisfaction for sin. Jesus as the new temple symbolizes that he is thirdly the locus of adoration, the place of adoration. One of the central purposes of the temple was for worship. The people did not travel to the temple just to hear God's word and to have sins forgiven. Many, many times they traveled to the temple to respond to God's grace and revelation. Israel gathered at the temple for festive occasions. They drew near to God to give thanks for the bountiful harvest, for deliverance from their enemies. They gathered together in communal offerings of thanksgiving. They gave to God dedicatory offerings and grain offerings and drink offerings to express their gratitude and their devotion to God. The temple was a place of worship or adoration. It was a place of revelation was a place of satisfaction but it was a place of praise and adoration it was a place of prayer Jesus says my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations so the temple then was a place of adoration 
destroy this temple. And in three days I will raise it up. You see, Jesus is the new temple. And as such, he fulfills all the functions of the old temple. If it was where God was revealed, then God is revealed in Christ. If the old te te temple was where sins were dealt with, then in Christ, the new temple, sins are dealt with. If the old temple was where God was worshipped, then in Christ, here is where God is worshipped. And this is not merely by extrapolation. There's evidence of this in a passage that I began to look at before I left. In John chapter 4, 21, our Lord's encounter with the Samaritan woman. The Samaritan woman was concerned about the place of worship. She wanted to know where Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim. She wanted to know where is the legitimate place for worship. Where is the right place for worship? And Jesus has an intriguing response to her question about place. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither worship on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. Jesus thought that the hour was coming, the time was coming, and was now. When worship will no longer be tied to a specific place. It was all about where you worship. It wasn't so much about the manner of worship, but was I right, worshiping in the right place? If I was in the right place, then half of my troubles are, are settled. But Jesus comes along and he says, the central question is not where, but whom do you worship? The question does not revolve around where. You see, worship must be in spirit and truth. And Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, is at the very apex of worship. That if one is to worship God, Jesus Christ now becomes a place of worship. You see, it's no longer about whether they went to Jerusalem or not, but did they go to Christ? Because he is the truth. He is the one who mediates the presence of God. No man can come to the Father, but by me. He's the place of worship. He's the place of adoration. In Ephesians 2 verse 18, Paul says, Now through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Jesus Christ is a new temple. The place of revelation. The place of satisfaction. And the place of adoration. This has implications for us. Because Jesus is the new temple where God is revealed, we must seek God in Christ. A true religion is not so much as going to a place. 
It's good to be gathered in a hall like this for worship. But God is not found in the church building. One of the reasons I don't believe in the altar call is because I believe that you can find God right where you are sitting and not before the pulpit. You see, you find God in Christ. And if you will have a true knowledge of God, a true understanding of God, you must go to Christ. It doesn't mean that you must not read the scriptures. You must read the scriptures because God is revealed in the scriptures. But the scriptures are those which point to Christ. He who would know God must know Christ. Because he is the temple. The one who reveals the father. No man knows the father except the son. And those to whom he reveals him. You can't seek to know God by bypassing Jesus, by diminishing the significance of Jesus, that any man or woman who will become familiar with God must be familiar with Jesus because he's the one who reveals the Father in his character. Do you want to know about the love and the mercy of God? You have to look in the face of Jesus. You have to look at the words of Jesus. You have to look at his love displayed on the cross. You want to see the authority of God, you've got to see it in Jesus as he rules over the waves and over the demons. You see, it is Jesus who reveals God. He's a new temple. But you also need to know that Jesus Christ is the new temple where satisfaction is made. Forgiveness of sins, payment for sin, is found in Jesus. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it. There's a sense in which our Lord Jesus Christ, who is a temple, was dismantled upon the cross. He was taken down. He was destroyed. His life was taken from him. But it is in the cross that satisfaction, the payment for our sins has been made. And God has raised him from the dead. And true healing, spiritual healing, and true blessing and deliverance from sin is found in Jesus. There is no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. Here is a temple to whom we must go if we are to have our sins removed. And the good news is this. Whereas God provided the temple of old for Israel's sin, God has provided Christ as a temple for all our sins, for Jews and for Gentiles. That all of us may come to this temple who is Christ. Come in our wretchedness. Come in our brokenness. Come in our filthiness and find full cleansing because Christ is the temple who deals with our sins once and for all. Because Christ is a place of adoration. We must go to Christ if we're to worship God. We must remember that God's presence is not 
localized in any particular place. I understand the importance of church buildings like this. But we mustn't worship buildings. I'm amazed, you know, at the kind of fights that churches can have. People will fight about changing the carpet and what color it should be. There are some churches, if you dare, decide, I want to paint the building. There are people who get their noses out of joint. I mean, my grandfather liked that color. His grandfather liked it. Then why don't you like it? Why do we have to change it? And after a while, the building becomes sacred. It becomes like a sacred cow. But you need to know that we who are Christians, we don't worship buildings. And we don't worship men. We worship the true temple. Is Christ. We honor him. We adore him who was slain and has redeemed us to God by his blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. We honor him as we honor the Father. We offer our praises to him. We offer our prayers through him to the Father. He's a temple. And so when we gather here, let's not come merely to a building, but let's come to Christ, through whom we give glory and praise to God. But I would be remiss if I were to conclude without saying this. Because Christ is the new temple, the true temple. We are derivatively by union with him the temple of God there's a sense in which the New Testament describes Christ as a temple but also describes us as a temple of God 1 Corinthians 6 your bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost how is it that Christ is the temple and we are the temple well he is a temple Big T, and we are the temple, little T. In other words, it's because we are in him, who is the true temple, that we become the place where God dwells. And you need to know that you, in a sense, don't really go to the temple. You carry the temple around. You are the place where Christ dwells. You're the temple of God. And that means we must be holy and careful. We are carrying he who is sacred with us wherever we go. And we, the church, because we are in Christ with the temple, are being built together. We are growing into a holy temple in the Lord. We are being built, Paul says, into a dwelling place, the place of God in the Spirit, in Ephesians 2, 21-22. You need to know that Christ is the revelation of God, the temple. He is the temple, the place of atonement, the temple, the place of adoration, 
But now we also are the temple in whom he dwells. And it means not only must we be holy, we must transmit revelation. We must reveal the Lord Jesus Christ to the world. As his temple, we must offer salvation to the world. We must tell them, salvation is not found in me, but it's found in Christ. 